And so it's just, again, a plea to, to, for, for those um, uh, colleagues out there to, to look at the study, look, look at the data, see if it applies to your patient that you have in front of you. Uh, and if it doesn't, then, you know, don't, don't apply it. You're listening to Parallax from Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. Here is your host, Ankur Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Parallax. I have with me Dr. Nidger from the UK. And, you know, what we've done traditionally in the past four seasons is that Dr. Nidger has been gracious to come back on the show and talk to us about, you know, the year that went by. He's picked for us trials, which you know, he thinks are the most important, how we practice clinical cardiology, you know, whether it's in the cath lab or whether it's in our patient clinics. And so this episode, he's going to discuss the trials which will shape cardiology in 2023, and these were all presented in 2022. Um, so with that introduction, uh, and, you know, by the way, no one needs to know about Dr. Sukhnitri. You know, he's um, um, a world-renowned interventionist and a clinical cardiologist, and he, and he practices in the UK and has an academic appointment at the Imperial College in London. Um, so with that introduction, so welcome on the show, and thank you so much for doing this for us again. Thank you so much, Anka. Thank you for the kind invitation. It's always a pleasure to be back on Parallax, and I've enjoyed listening to your conversations with so many esteemed colleagues from the US and all over the world. I always feel I enjoy a lot from listen, uh, listening, um, learn a lot of information from colleagues, and I enjoy our conversation about these studies. Yeah, no, likewise, I, I actually end up learning each time we we have a conversation. So we're just going to dive right in. So can, I'm going to have you, um, you know, start the conversation by talking to us about flavor, uh, which was presented at the American College of Cardiology annual scientific sessions uh, in 2022. And who better than you to talk to us about coronary physiology and physiology guided PCI. So I'll um, I'll let you um, talk to us about flavor. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Akko. So, uh, flavor is a study that's relevant for interventionalists. So, perhaps less relevant for general cardiologists, but still important because so many of our patients end up having revascularization. And I show a little bit of my bias by uh, talking first about this study because it's about coronary physiology, and this is something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about and publishing about. And so the, it was done by uh, colleagues, Bonwon Koo, who's an established and really quite esteemed uh, interventionist from South Korea. And uh, it was presented at ACC uh, at the beginning of the year. And what they tried to show, what, what they were aimed to do was compare FFR-guided revascularization to image-guided revascularization in the form of intravascular imaging with uh, IVUS. And non-interventionists may be aware that there's been an increasing controversy uh, over which modality to use to guide our intervention into our stents. And in the majority of cases for stable coronary disease, I think it's now well known and well accepted by uh, most of us in the field that stable patients should be offered medical therapy for the majority of the time. And only if there is unacceptable symptoms, uh, then should they be offered at PCI. And then when you have a stable patient, you do an angiogram, we often find that there are multiple narrowings and multiple lesions in, in the vessels. We don't always know which lesion to target. And for a long time, we've used uh, FFR or fractional flow reserve, which is a pressure that's measured within the coronary artery using a pressure wire and say, well, we're going to target this particular vessel versus, say, the LED versus the circumflex because this appears to be where the ischemia is most. And on the other side of that uh, paradigm, people feel that we should be targeting plaque and the volume of plaque. And by using intravascular ultrasound, we can definitely see that. And this le often leads to a little bit of confusion because sometimes we see a lot of plaque in a vessel, but the vessel may not be physiologically significant, may not be causing ischemia. And there's always been a push and pull over which technology is better. And so that's what these colleagues try to uh, assess. What they wanted to show was that uh, the two technologies, they wanted to see if one was better than the other or, or if they were non-inferior. They took around 800 or so patients in each arm 
and they randomize them in an open label way. It's quite challenging uh, at, to, to blind patients and operators about this kind of thing. It can be done. We've done it as part of the uh, orbit study and defined PCI, but it, it's a little bit tricky. And what uh, they showed was that there were similar events seen in both the fractional flow reserve group and in the FFR group. So whether you use a physiology parameter or whether you use an IVIS-guided approach, the outcomes were similar. There's a couple of things to talk about here. Lots of commentators and lots of people looking at this have taken this as a win for IVIS and said, well, that means that we uh, can no longer don't have to use FFR, we can simply use IVIS, and we uh, basically have a technology that leads to really good results. There's a few points here in regards to that, because in the IVIS arm, a lot more revascularization was performed and a lot more stents were performed, and yet there were no differences in any of the important outcomes, no differences in death, and there were no differences in uh, revascularization, and there were no differences in uh, the Seattle angina questionnaire. So it means that we were performing a lot more revascularization without a lot, a lot of difference in events. And so I would put it to the listeners and say, well, does that really mean that IBIS is superior uh, rather than using fractional flow reserve? And so that is just something that I wanted to highlight to the listeners and say that whilst we people have looked at this study and said, well, you know, that means we don't need FFR anymore. I say, well, actually, is that really what this study is showing? It's showing that we get equivalent results with a lot less stents if you use an FFR approach. And our practice has always been to combine the two technologies together. Again, to use a pressure wire to indicate the PCI and then use the IVIS to tell us how to perform the PCI, which means assessing the vessel size, making sure that our stents are right size, making sure the stents are well expanded. Because as always, once a stent goes in, the outcome is determined by that by that stent and the quality of the stenting. And we see that even in this study. If you look at the arm that got medical therapy, that is fractional flow reserve was negative, more than 0.8. These patients didn't have stents. They had an incredibly low event rate in this study, 5%. But if you look at those patients that then went on and had PCI, they had uh, multiple uh, factors um, of event rate higher. So around uh, 11 to 12% rates of uh, events in the PCI arm. So again, it shows that if you do do PCI, it has to be well-performed and it has to be optimized. And so th that's my principal take home from this particular study. Yeah, no, I agree with you. So, and I think, you know, my own practice, uh, I think the decision to stenting is, is a physiology based decision. Um, and, you know, Optimizing PCI is, you know, when I would deploy intracoronary imaging, you know, either IVUS or OCT, mostly IVUS. Um, and uh, I mean, the way I would think about more revascularization in the IVUS arm is, I think the the old angiography-based ocular stenotic reflect the interventionalist, um, and that is, you know, the more blood you see, the more you want to stent it. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. And that keeps being shown. We must be humble as interventionists. The skills uh, that we've gained over the years uh, does, does serve our patients well because we've learned from doing complex lesions. Uh, and then that can then be tackled when patients are having non-ST elevation or ST elevation MI. And that certainly is of benefit. But we have to be humble in the fact that many of these patients don't need stents and uh, we can manage these patients for a period of time medically. And of course, if there are ongoing symptoms, then we can always do that, and that remains uh, an option available for us. And then we should be really careful about making sure that we, we put the stents in the right place. And so a physiological approach using mapping, we, we did a live, couple of live case demonstrations at the most recent British Intervention Society meeting, um, and we showed that you can use mapping, physiological mapping within the vessel show where the lesions are uh, most um, important and then guide your strategy through that. And if you if you do that, you you limit the number of stents you put. Sometimes you end up putting more because it shows that you you simply can't improve the vessel without covering the whole thing. Uh, and so actually this whole thing about, oh, I'm just going to put a, a sneak a little scent in here and get out, uh, I think is really doing our patients a disservice. And it's unsurprising that uh, so many of our PCI studies then come out negative. We should just be accepting of that, I think. Yes, I, I agree with you. And I just have, um, I have one comment and then a couple of follow-up questions for you here, Suk. Um, so one, 
the comment is that this is for, for the for the flavor study. These are non left main lesions, right? These are not left main lesions. So th this is uh, standard kind of coronary work, predominantly stable patients, uh, perhaps. Uh, the, although they talk about a lot of these patients being optimized, the actual total number of patients being optimized post-PCI is actually quite modest uh, with not great FFR values after the stents and um, not necessarily perfect MLAs uh, at the end of, of PCI, even in the iris arm. So, uh, so clearly some work, more work could have been done and that may have altered the results. Yes, and then um, the two follow-up questions that I have for you is, one, um, would you extrapolate these results to, you know, instantaneous wave-free ratio wire and also the um, diastolic hyperemia free ratio wire? So IFR and DFR is what I'm talking about. And I, I would, the assumption is yes, I would say yes. Yeah, I would say uh, almost certainly yes. The overlap between these technologies is sufficient for us to say that uh, this is likely to hold true for, for those other parameters. There are some subtle differences that give advantages to the diastolic values in certain settings, perhaps less likely to be fooled in patients with left ventricular hypertrophy or those patients with diastolic dysfunction and diabetes in which the microvascular isn't responsive to adenosine. So perhaps you perform a few more stents with one technology versus the other, but not enough to, to move the needle on a, on a study like this. So I would expect the results to be the same. Yes, and then for, the, um, for, for post-PCI optimization, um, what MLA, minimal luminal area, do you target? I know the study was 5.5, but is that across a spectrum of each vessel? Or like the left main where you have the five, six, seven, eight, will you follow a certain rule in clinical practice? Or, you know, in clinical practice, you, you also do post-PCI physiology like you were discussing earlier. Yeah, this is a very good question. So this um, portends to whether we believe these numbers mean anything at all. So the um, this, is this is the ir irony of, of how we get ourselves in knots in, in medical practice. So the various... Uh, sizes in the coronary vessels have been validated, um, IVIS-based me measures have been validated against fractional flow reserve uh, and some limited outcome studies. So we get ourselves into a bit of a circle when we say we're going to aim for this particular number because uh, it's better than FFR, but of course that number was validated against FFR. So the um, uh, uh, my personal preference is to base it according to the distal reference zone. And we try and go for the slightly old-fashioned music criteria, which is, can be very difficult to hit. And this is a criteria that was used for Syntax 2, which had a complex cohort of patients with quite, quite complex coronary disease. And you want to measure the distal reference size of your vessel, of your lumen, and you want to achieve at least 90% of that. And so your minimal stent area needs to be 90% of your, of your distal reference. And so that can often be much larger than 5.5 millimeters. And uh, certainly if I was in a proximal LED and it was only just 5.5, then I would be unhappy with that. And then it tells you that you need to do more work. And the other components of it is to do with your edge of stent. Does it land in a lot of plaque? And when you've got plaque volume of more than 50, 55 percent, then that is a predictor of long-term instant restenosis and early events. And so, again, it tells us that we need to take our stents a little bit longer and try and go as normal to normal as possible. Not, not always achievable. Some patients' disease is not achieve, uh, treatable in, in a straightforward way. But if you can, then you certainly should go for it. Yeah, and then I think just um, as um, a compliment to the investigators, uh, um, this is just a closing remark for, for the flavor study before we move on to the next trial, is that the, uh, you know, 29% of the patients were, were women, um, you know, which, uh, you know, is, is terrific. Uh, you know, if, if you've looked at historical controls and, and trial enrollment among, among women, I, I think this was a win. And I, I think it sort of also mirrors clinical practice in that a third of these patients also had diabetes. Um, so with, with that discussion, um, the next study that we're going to talk about, which, you know, also is extremely relevant to clinical practice, you know, whether you're a general cardiologist or an internist, is revived BCIS-2, which presented at ESC um, and published in the New England Journal. 
um, extremely well done study, controversial, raised a lot of eyebrows. Um, I'll have you talk about revived with our listenership. Stuck. Yeah, thank you, Anka. So this is an incredibly complex study, and it's a huge round of applause to the uh, to those organising, designing the study, and those recruiting patients into it. It's clearly a very difficult study to run because it was something that was conceived immediately after the STIT study was published in around 2010. And so, uh, so I can imagine that around 2011, um, when Stitch, the final Stitch uh, presentation came out at that point, that, uh, that Dr. Professor Pereira from St. Thomas's Hospital in London was thinking of uh, how he was going to answer this particular question. You'll remember that Stitch looked at patients with multivessel disease and poor LV function, so EFs of less than 35% and offered them bypass surgery in an attempt to improve long-term outcomes and improve LV function. And in the first uh, two to five years after STITCH, actually, there was increased hazard, as you would expect, because the patients were having major surgical procedure and there were uh, events related to the surgery itself. But then if you look at the long-term follow-up of STITCH, what they showed were the outcomes improved and there was a switch in the curves such that those patients that had revascularization did better than those that did not. And that perhaps is, is what we would hope to see, uh, and that's the, you know, the central tenet of what we do in, in cardiology. And so it would inevitable to think, well, what, what if we were to replace bypass surgery with coronary intervention with PCI? And so they instituted this uh, lovely study looking at patients with poor LV function, less than 35%, with known coronary disease, almost all of these patients had three-vessel disease, around 90% of them had three-vessel disease, and they included patients with left main stem. And the patients also had to have viability. And by that, they, the vast majority of the patients, around 70%, had cardiac MRI. And this is a UK study performed in hospitals around the country. And UK cardiac MRI access is actually surprisingly good. This is something that this country is actually very good at being able to deliver. And, and we've got a very strong cohort of consultant cardiologists in the imaging, in the imaging field. And so they were reporting on viability. And they then offered these patients... Uh, either optimal medical therapy or revascularization. And what they found in this particular cohort of patients, and who the average age is around 70, uh, mostly men, um, unfortunately, in this particular study, very few women, in fact, uh, included, was that at looking at their um, outcome at eight years, so a long period of follow-up, that there was no difference at all whether the patients underwent revascularization or optimal therapy. And in fact, left ventricular function overall didn't really improve in the grand scheme of things when you look along the, the whole, the totality of the follow-up. And uh, that there were very few secondary outcomes that were of benefit either uh, in terms of patients' uh, Kansas City uh, score, um, in terms of their well-being, and in terms of uh, uh, other aspects of uh, MI, myocardial infarction, and these kind of parameters didn't really uh, change dramatically across the totality of the study. And that has led to some commentators saying, well, that means that, you know, it's a further death knell of PCI that it essentially shows that in this so-called perfect setting that there was no value to performing PCI. And there are a couple of reasons to kind of push back against that. I think these studies are incredibly hard to, to do. In order to recruit these uh, 700 patients or so, it, it essentially took uh, eight eight years to be able to do the study, which means that this is a highly selected cohort. There are many hospitals around the UK contributing to this study, many, many. And so the total number of patients recruited by individual operators is overall relatively low. And the time taken to recruit suggests that this is highly selected. And that might be because operators have their inherent bias, they feel that they should revascularize these patients and therefore they don't want to randomize the patients where they actually think the most value is, which invariably means that those recruited into the study perhaps have slightly less value. Hard to say, very hard to say. I know many of the people involved in this study and I know that they're very diligent people who take performing studies very seriously. But also it, it, there's a couple of other aspects of it that are a little bit unusual. These patients were all mostly angina-free. They did not have chest pain, and that was not a major driver uh, to, to get into the study. They, this was revascularization for the sake of revascularization, not because of the, the presence of, uh, of um, chest pain. 
So again, that's quite a little bit unusual, perhaps different from our practice, particularly now because things have changed over time. And also we know that our practice changes a lot over that length of time. If you're doing a study which takes that length of time to do, then in that time there's been a whole raft of changes simply in terms of medications available for heart failure management, medicines that have been proven to improve outcomes. And our style of revascularization has changed a lot. In the United Kingdom, it's just been published. Uh, almost all of these cases now are done radially. The uh, use of intravascular imaging is very, very high. And that's uh, very true of data now. But perhaps if you look back at data from 2013 or, or 2014, that perhaps wasn't the case. So that does alter a little bit some of the, some of the results. So I'm a little cautious in how I interpret it. And also, I, I hesitate in some interpretation where people say, well, now that we have these results, it means that any time I have a heart failure patient, I don't need to send them for, to the cath lab. I don't need to define their coronary anatomy. Let's express a little bit of caution there, because particularly in young patients with new onset heart failure, I think it's important to make sure that there is no left main stem or osteo LAD disease, because we do see patients who recover LV function when treated in that setting. And I think it is important because we know that there are other aspects of their care that are impacted on by knowing whether there is ischemia or, or coronary disease underlying this. So in terms of ICDs, we know that those patients with ischemic cardiomyopathies, poor LV function do better than those with a cardiomyopathic process. So there's a, a few things to interpret in this study. I think it is very well done. I think we, we should applaud the, uh, the those involved in the study because it is hard to run these and it does help. Uh, un understand this field more. But I suppose at the same time, we mustn't uh, completely change our practice without understanding the nuances that applies to all of these, uh, all of these findings. Yeah, no, excellent discussion. So can, um, there are a, a couple of things that I want to tease out here just, you know, for listenership as, as well as for us as clinicians. And, and, you know, we see these patients not infrequently in our practice. I'm sure you would agree. Um, the first question is, um, were these patients symptomatic at the time of diagnosis? So it's a little tricky to, to fully understand when you go through these, uh, go through the graphics and the, and the paper published in New England. So the actual uh, New York heart classification uh, score for these patients is actually pretty low. Vast majority are one or two with breathlessness. And I think the number of patients who are actually having angina were also very little. So this is not a revascularization for angina study. This is active attempts at revascularizing patients with poor LV in the hope that by perhaps revascularizing an LAD or in right coronary artery, that subtends a viable territory that we can improve LV function. I would say that uh, at the present, I haven't seen the, the, the data for the um, what happens at the time of intervention. So far, the data that I've seen, I know it's been presented um, in various conferences, but I haven't seen the papers on this yet where the, uh, you know, what happens in which territories and uh, in terms of uh, the quality of PCI that was performed and, and so on and so forth. And I think it is also worth noting that this was actually a fairly sick cohort of patients because even at two years, the, the death rate is uh, around, or the event rate is around 20%. And at eight years, the event rate is in the kind of 40 to 60% rate, which is incredibly high. So that tells you that these patients are really quite sick, really, really quite sick. Um, and so that also perhaps, uh, perhaps suggests that some of these patients were uh, those who we were least likely to win in. Um, and perhaps, for example, if it was a 50-year-old uh, gentleman with recent onset LV dysfunction, then, you know, that's something you can get an easy win in. Uh, hard to say for, for certain. And perhaps in these patients who are uh, on average around in their 70s, who've obviously had coronary disease for some time, have had LV dysfunction for some time, uh, are we really going to make a dramatic difference in their outcome uh, at that point? H hard to say. Yes, and you know, I think um, I, I asked you about symptoms because, uh, again, um, I mean, you, we like I said, we see these patients not infrequently, um, but then you know, just to extrapolate the the point that you made on a new diagnosis of LV systolic dysfunction in patients who get hospitalized, and you know, if 
your colleague is taking away the message that these patients now do not need an angiogram, that certainly is not the take-home message. I think it's important to define anatomy. And, you know, like you said, it's a left main lesion or if it's an osteo left anterior descending lesion, then these patients certainly would merit vascularization. Also, a lot of these patients do get hospitalized with a kidney complex heart failure. So that would certainly put them in New York Heart Association 3 or 4 class. So, you know, these, these patients are different than what, um, you know, were at least randomized in the trial. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's hard to, uh, whenever you're running a, a study like this, which is requires uh, multimodality imaging, requires uh, coronary disease, I understand, was fairly complicated and therefore we needed a fair amount of work. They would have needed discussion in MDTs. All of this uh, impacts on uh, recruitment, getting patients in, performing the procedure. Uh, and But that then also that has some impact on generalizability. And certainly uh, my main concern with, with these studies is that the um, it's just how they're interpreted. I think those in the uh, academic circles uh, are very intelligent and nuanced in the way they uh, converse. It's just that so many colleagues only take away the headline and the, the headline is, well, PCI fails in uh, heart failure. Uh, and I think that that leads to a change in behavior that may not be beneficial for your patient. And so it's just, again, a plea to, to, for, for those um, uh, colleagues out there to to look at the study, look, look at the data, see if it applies to your patient that you have in front of you, uh, and if it doesn't, then you know don't don't apply it. Yeah, no, excellent, excellent point uh, to to wrap this discussion, which which brings us to a, a third uh, controversial study. Uh, I think fairly um, anticipated results, and um, you know, again, there was a lot of discussion on how the conclusion statements were handled uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine paper, but you know, I'll have you discuss um, the results with us. And, you know, this is protected fiber, so this is use of a cerebral embolic protection device, um, you know, in a standardized fashion. So all comers in patients who are receiving transcatheter aortic valve replacement. Um, and I'll have you uh, talk about the study design and, and the results and, what implications it has for clinical practice? Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so this I know this study is close to your heart, and this is uh, I'm not a TAVI operator I'll, or a TAVR operator. I'll declare that up front of my work has ended up being predominantly uh, coronary work, and uh, in our particular institution, we we have a, a small cohort of uh, TAVI operators who essentially exclusively to TAVI they do a very large number. And we know that many of these patients who are put forward for TAVA have a elevated risk of stroke. And that stroke appears to be unpredictable. And lots of people have looked to see whether we can work out what strategies we can do to predict which patient is going to have a stroke at the time of, uh, of TAVA placement. And there are lots of theories of why the stroke happens in terms of when we fr fracture the valve, uh, then there is a, a lot of embolic uh, stuff that goes up towards the brain. And certainly MRI studies have shown that many patients, if you scan them at the time of TAVA, then you will see embolic events in the brain. But that doesn't always manifest as a clinical stroke. So lots of patients have these events in their head, but clinically look very well. And on the other side, there will be a patient that has a catastrophic uh, uh, event which is clearly uh, unwanted and not the target of our of our therapy, not the aim of our therapy. And so, it, putting in a cerebral protection device is very attractive. And I've seen these devices being used, and I can I know that they are uh, relatively easy to deploy. There are some nuances to them, and they do have some limitations in the fact that they don't protect both sets of supply into the brain. They only protect one side, which has it has a limitation. And in this particular um, study that was led by a, a colleague of yours, um, uh, Professor Capadia, took all comers who were having um, uh, TAVI being placed, randomized them to one-to-one -one fashion, around 1,500 patients in each arm having either cerebral protection or, or not. 
and then uh, essentially follow them up for a very short time. Okay, and that's because they wanted to see if there was a clinically meaningful stroke straight after the TAVI procedure. And they so they're only following up for 72 hours. And that is both a strength and a limitation of the study. But of course, if you uh, if we believe that the stroke was caused by the, the implantation itself, then it's going to happen in that period. And what they showed was, uh, unfortunately, the overall primary outcome of stroke before uh, discharge or within 72 hours was no different at 2.3% in the uh, protected arm versus 2.9% in the uh, control arm. So no difference at all. But as you alluded to, they, they had a number of secondary outcomes, which they really emphasized in uh, the in their final publication. And it led to a lot of controversy when it was um, presented at TCT, which was that disabling stroke was significantly reduced uh, with disabling stroke being about 0.5%, so very low in the protected arm, and 1.3% in the in the control arm. And there are some difficulties with that, because if we believe in study design and we believe in how we power these studies, then we, we have to uh, go with the primary outcome rather than looking at the secondary outcomes. And the secondary outcomes are purely hypothesis generating, and they can't uh, give us an answer, because that, that has a high risk of bias being added into the study and really... Uh, means that we're picking and choosing the outcomes that we feel happiest with after after the fact. So uh, I, I know that many uh, operators who, who strongly believe in the technology were really disappointed with, with this study. Uh, and I think there is the principal thing to take away from this is that uh, this is an area that remains unsettled. This uh, it, it, There still needs more work to be done. And that perhaps if operators feel very strongly about it, then we should be pursuing a larger study. Now, of course, that probably won't happen because the um, industry partners um, basically want these studies to, to, to get approval for the device and to be able to start marketing the device. And once the device gets marketed and pushed out, then it's very hard to claw that back and uh, to, to do a further larger study to, to see whether a study powered for disabling stroke would get the same answer or not. So that's where the controversy comes from. I, I know you feel quite strongly about this, uh, Anka. What, what, what are your thoughts? Yes, no, uh, you know, first of all, excellent discussion and um, important study, you know, really important addition to the literature. Um, 3,000 patients, 40% uh, were, were women. Um, so, you know, kudos to the investigators. And, you know, I certainly am have a soft spot for the study because the 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 pi the, the primary investigator and the lead author is 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 a colleague a former colleague and and a mentor of mine um and you know i would i would agree i mean hard to interpret um in light of what the primary outcome was in comparison with what the secondary outcomes showed um you know stroke is uh, is a disabling um complication for any procedure for interventionalists, you know, whether it's, um, you know, TAVI or even PCI. Now in, in TAVI, the, the stroke rates have remained at 2, 2.5%. Um, and I'm talking about all comers TAVI. Now, certainly you have some subsets, particularly bicuspid patients or, you know, even patients with valve and valve procedures in which, um, you know, one tends to see stroke more often compared with just tricuspid senile calcific aortic valve stenosis. Um, and, um, you know, it, when I was, um, at my former institution where, uh, the, the principal investigator for the, for the study is, um, it was a routine practice to deploy these, uh, devices prior to every single, every single case. So, you know, I have my own biases based on how, uh, clinical practice was, was performed at, at that institution. Um, you know, that being said, you know, we have to respect what the data show and the data show that, you know, the primary outcome was not different. Um, now, as you eloquently mentioned, the secondary outcomes uh, in light of how the trial was designed are only hypothesis generating. And so, you know, the in the secondary outcomes, the disabling stroke was, was significantly less in the embolic protection arm compared with um, you know, the arm that did not receive embolic protection. Um, so, you know, I'm actually on the cusp, to be honest with you, after these data were presented. Um, you know, well well done study. Um, the results were very heavily discussed, you know, as 
as, as we talked about it earlier. Um, does it change my own, you know, practice? I would probably err on the side of saying no at this point. Um, although I, I'll, I'll be honest, I'm not as enthused about, you know, deploying the device as I was prior to these. Data. Uh, you know, that's just my honest, uh, you know, opinion um, based on what the what the study showed. Um, so if for any reason, you know, the device is not going in smoothly, I would not think twice before aborting the, you know, the procedure. And, uh, you know, the, the other big component of this is, uh, and I think you alluded to it, is one one is approval. Uh, and then second, uh, you know, in the U.S. is, is reimbursement. Um, so if based on these data in other hospitals, you're having issues in getting the device at an appropriate price and then getting, you know, having a hard time getting it reimbursed, then I'm not certain if the device will find, you know, uh, a market for itself. Yeah. Um, again, you know, Tavi um, keeps expanding, you know, the, um, it keeps expanding to patients who are younger. You know, that, that is an, uh, another important uh, distinction here at the, the mean age was 79 in, in the protected TAVA trial. So, you know, just being mindful that if you are doing a TAVI in a 65 or a 68 year old, and, you know, God forbid that that patient lands with a stroke, you know, one would question if you had used this device, would the outcome be different? So, you know, I remain on the fence, uh, you know, as a purist, certainly the, the data do not support routine use of the device. Um, but, but I, I think it, again, it, 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 depends on the operator, your experience with the device, and then also the patient and having these honest discussions with the patient, you know, it has to be a shared decision. You know, that's my take on it. I don't know what you think about that answer, Suk. Yeah, I think that summarizes a lot of very important things that come together whenever we're doing a procedure like this. We all have our inherent biases. It makes sense that if we protect the carotids, we can protect the brain and reduce the amount of stroke that can happen. And uh, if we're experienced in doing it and it doesn't add anything in terms of risk to the patient, then why wouldn't we do it? However, when we when we do a study, we are aiming to try and prove one way or the other. And the study in the like this, in a very pragmatic study, which is brings in all comers, it will have some lot of pros and cons in relation to, to how that applies to the patient in front of you. Here we've got genuine all comers in a cohort of patients that were appropriate and indicated for TAVI. So not young young patients, but older patients. And so when we don't see that benefit, then it does put, put a pause on how we practice. But can you imagine the other side? If you've got a family member after a patient's now had a stroke and they go to their lawyers and say, well, there's this study out there that shows that the disabling stroke rate was dramatically reduced by the use of this product, then a lawyer can successfully argue, regardless of whether it was a primary or secondary outcome, because as far as I'm aware, that most judges are not informed on trial design or how this, um, how to interpret these studies. It does put operators in a very, very difficult situation. Um, and I can understand and I sympathize completely with uh, the, those people who feel they don't want to change practice. It's very easy for those in academic practice uh, to say, oh, no, the numbers don't lie. This is exactly what we're going to do and uh, everything else can stop. But when you have a patient in front of you, it is genuinely very difficult. So uh, I, I don't know. I'm, as I say, I'm not a TAVR operator. I uh, take my um, uh, the approach to the patient based on what my colleagues say. In our institution, we don't routinely use these unless there is uh, a feeling that there is this patient's got very high risk or um, they've had multiple uh, events before and we need to protect brain function as much as possible. I think that's how we tend to have selected use. But that has its own difficulties because, of course, if you only use it selectively, you're not going to be as good at using it. So that has its own issue. One other thing that we've become very interested in looking at is that there appears to be other mechanisms for stroke in, in, in TAVA, and some of that may well be the process of unsheathing the device itself uh, seems to release bubbles and release um, uh, some air that's trapped within the sheathing system itself, and that could be causing some of the event. And it doesn't matter, a sentinel device like this obviously wouldn't prevent those events. And I know that our particular institution is recruiting patients into to looking at that, whether that has an impact on, on stroke. And I, I wonder what your thoughts are on something like that. 
Yes, no, I, I think um, we've seen this on we've seen this uh, beautiful demonstration, uh, you know, on Twitter, uh, you know, using a model where you know as you're unsheathing the Tavi device, you know, so as you're unsheathing the valve, you are releasing bubbles uh, into the uh, vascular space, and could that be the cause for you know disabling strokes in a subset of patients? Um, you know, as I discussed earlier on when we were discussing the trial that, you know, the stroke rate has remained at 2, 2.5%. That's, that's, that's a number that we would like to, to see lower, particularly as, you know, the indications to perform tally expand. Uh, and as we do more low risk cases, um, and, you know, as it even encroaches onto the moderate aortic stenosis space, uh, you know, the one thing that we would want is, you know, a pristine clinical outcome with no stroke. You know, um, so, you know, I, w- I wouldn't just discount the device based on the expanding, you know, base of patients and, you know, even expanding indications, particularly in the moderate a- aortic stenosis space, as, as I discussed. Um, and, you know, I, I think the, the periprocedural stroke field space needs to keep evolving for TAVI um, because if the mechanism is completely different, then maybe we're barking up the wrong tree. So, you know, important important comment there. So, can you know, it, it's going to be exciting to see how the field evolves. You know, both in terms of preventing and mitigating stroke risk, and also you know managing, opt you know optimally managing these patients in the long term. You know, whether we we need to um, you know anticoagulate them in the long term or you know deploy antiplatelet strategy. You know, that uh, is a separate discussion in, in and of itself. And uh, you know. I, you know, we've published, um, you know, several observational analyses in, in that regard. I'm, I'm referring to subvalvular, um, you know, thrombosis and, uh, I mean, subclinical valve thrombosis and, and also valve thrombosis when it comes to uh, transcatheter valve replacement. So uh, thank you. Um, you know, watch this space for more, I would say, and just leave it at that for now. All right, so uh, that brings us to our last study that we want to talk about, um, you know, on this episode. Uh, and you know, thanks thanks to you for actually even bringing this to, to light for me, um, you know, because I, I haven't seen the paper published, but uh, really interesting data presented at the American Heart Association annual scientific sessions in, in Chicago in 2022, and and this is um, a traditional Chinese medication. And please, I'm going to apologize if I'm butchering this name. It's Tongzing Lu. Uh, that's that's how it's it's spelled at least. And you correct me if I'm wrong. So, and and this drug was given in patients who were having ST elevation MI in China. And I'm going to have you talk more about not only the 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 Chinese product, but also implications um, of these data when it comes to extrapolating these data to you know other parts of the world and. You know how do we um, how do we garner new knowledge from from data coming out from countries like China and, and India? Yeah, thanks, Ankur. I mean, uh, this is one of the reasons I, I picked this study. I think it was uh, it's really uh, opens interesting uh, avenues for us to explore, and perhaps this study in itself is perhaps less important than perhaps the wider implications. Certainly, for me, it opened my eyes a little bit uh, onto this this hold space. And for similarly, please forgive me if I uh, mispronounce this. I, 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 my, uh, Mandarin is uh, not super strong. We, we had a great uh, dinner in a fabulous Chinese restaurant the other day in London in which we were accosted by, because it's Chinese New Year, and we were accosted by a, a wonderful dragon. And I realized that actually my ability to pronounce Chinese words is, is very poor uh, with my Chinese friends who laughed a lot at me. But this, uh, as you say, is, is written as Tong Xin Lo. And this is a natural product uh, that's used widely in China that was been studied for a number of years that seems to have benefits in reducing no reflow. And we all know that patients with ST elevation myocardial infarction uh, can have a syndrome of no reflow in which the vessel is opened, we deploy the stent, the artery is opened, the lesion is relieved, and yet we may not normalize the flow in the vessel because there is some form of microvascular damage and destruction within the microcirculation. There's uh, microthrombi, there's blebbing, there's inflammation in the endothelial. And this natural product, which contains a whole number of different 
plant-based extracts, including ginseng and a number of other products, seems to reduce, in animal models at least, no reflow, and quite, quite, quite considerably so. And so it's in this Chinese study of uh, 3,700 patients across uh, multiple hospitals in China, 124 hospitals, which in itself is a super impressive number. Uh, they recruited patients having SC elevation myocardial infarction, and they randomized them to have this investigational product and or placebo, and then simply looked at their outcomes at 30 days, which is a very reasonable uh, point to look at if you're looking at an acute event um, that in particular something like no reflow. And they found that there was a significant reduction in those patients who were given this investigational product, is Tong Zinglei. And they found there around 64 patients, around three and three and a half percent of the patients in this group had the events versus 99 patients or five and a half patients, five and a half percent in the placebo group. And uh, there was a reduction in a number of other secondary endpoints as well, including cardiac death. Uh, and um, uh, there we wouldn't expect 30-day myocardial infarction rates to change, but and, and sure enough, that wasn't the case. Uh, but there were, was perhaps a slight numerical reduction in stroke. So this it raises some interesting questions. So this is it, what first thing it does is it suggests that whilst much of our focus here in the West has been on uh, products that have been developed by the pharmaceutical industry, products that are uh, conceived in a lab and millions upon sometimes billions of dollars are spent on refining and identifying an, an investigational product, turning it into something that we uh, then ingest and then investigating it. Here, there is a product that has exists naturally, uh, that exists uh, for some time that people in China have been using for many years, uh, but just hasn't been looked at in, with the same kind of scientific rigor. And yet it seems to show benefit. So that's interesting in itself. And that one can imagine in many societies, as you say, in China and India, where there are lots and lots of traditional remedies that appear to have some benefit, perhaps we should be looking at those. And rather than, you know, pumping all, all, all of the world's money into looking for a new molecule, perhaps we should just look at some of the things that we already have. And I think that's interesting in itself. And I always remember... Uh, and think back on the fact that statins, although many of our patients will turn around and say, oh, I don't want to take this chemical. You know, statins are, were extracted from a natural product. Aspirin is extracted from a natural product. Uh, and, and digoxin, obviously, and, and many other do all come from natural products. So there is, there's that avenue of things. And then the other component is, um, do we'd say, for example, there are many studies performed in China. They have huge numbers of patients very huge numbers of patients having events like MI in incredibly phenomenal hospitals now with great facilities, incredible technical operators who achieve great results. Are these results now applicable also to the West? And I say that because for a long time, when we performed studies in the West, uh, those hospitals in the Far East would sometimes say, well, that's great, but these data don't apply to us because our populations are different. Uh, in Japan and, and uh, South Korea, for example, many operators would repeat the studies that had already been done in the West to show that they worked in a Chinese or a Japanese or a South Korean population. So do these studies therefore go back the other way? Do, do, do the findings in a Chinese population apply to uh, a North American in, in the Midwest, for example? So that's, that's important uh, consideration to have. And then and then the final thing is, I think this really demonstrates a change uh, in our conferences and a change in our academic discourse that now important studies out of China, and I hope to see more studies from India, will start to take an important place because I think this is the opening up of the world's knowledge rather than us saying the words, using, you know, saying that we're open, but not really being open. Uh, actually incorporating studies that are from the Far East and putting them on the pedestal and really opening them up for a discussion and peer review, I think is a real benefit. And that's one of the other reasons I wanted to highlight this study, because it just opens our eyes a little bit to, to what else is going on in the world. Yes, and you know, also, you know, the the world continues to be a melting pot, uh, you know, cultures and ethnicities and um, uh, I'm sure you'll see patients in clinical practice in London who are, you know, of um, you know Asian descent, and whether you would extrapolate these. Well, first of all, if this product would be available, 
you know, for, for prescription in, in the UK. But, you know, you and I know more importantly, when there are immigrants and, you know, even, you know, generational families who are, who have roots in the Far East, uh, you know, there is a lot of, um, you know, travel and, and patients have access to these medications from, you know, from their uh, home countries. And then they would get you a bottle of this traditional Chinese medicine and you'd be asked the question of, you know, Dr. Niger, can I take this product? A, a study in China showed that there was a benefit. Yeah, I, I think the, the you, you're absolutely right there. So that we here in the West, we perhaps have our own biases, and we think, okay, uh, are are these results credible? Uh, can we believe them? And uh, do they apply to our patients? I think that these are all thoughts that go through our head, and I think it's important to uh, the scientific community that we discuss these studies and we look at them and we do a deep dive and we look at the data, open the supplementary appendix and to understand that a lot more. And I think it's important for us to spend the time and look at these things because many of our patients are taking these supplements. I'm sure you are asked every single day, uh, is it okay for me to take this supplement, doctor? And sometimes I, I look these things up and go, oh gosh, this, this supplement actually interacts with clopidogrel or it interacts with warfarin or you know what, whatever else the, the, the patient is taking. So you've got to be a little bit cautious. And and recently there was a study, um, I don't immediately recall its name, but it was looking at some of these things like fish oils and uh, uh, various uh, lipid supplements that patients often take. And they often take sometimes in lieu of taking a high quality statin. And we generally think of them as not harmful, but there was a study that's shown that actually some of them are bringing up your LDLC levels. And so perhaps they are harmful. And so, you know, it, it does behoove us for us to look at supplements natural remedies and not dismiss them out of hand and uh, to actually put them through a trial process. Yes. Um, well, look, um, thanks again for doing this for us. Um, I know it's, I know it's been a busy time for you and, you know, we really appreciate you having us on, uh, having you on Parallax and, you know, having spend the time with us and uh, discussing as usual in great length and detail um, and accuracy, all these studies and what they mean for our, patients in our practice. Any closing remarks? Well, I, I'd just say it's great to, to speak to you. And I relish the opportunity to kind of go through some of these studies. Obviously, when we, we talk about them, it's sometimes it's easy for us to make mistakes or to misspeak on these kind of things. But the, the uh, we go through these studies in great detail. And I think it's more to try and take away some of the nuggets that uh, can inform practice because that's after all one of the reasons we, we we do these studies to look at how it informs practice and trying to make sense of where these studies fit into our day-to-day -day practices is probably the hardest thing we do as as physicians and so you know i just push for the audience to always take an opportunity to read the paper if you can and discuss it have journal clubs and review these these data in, in your in your local hospitals and and practice groups because there's there's a lot of value to have from doing that. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, thank you again, Suk. And you know, for, for the listenership, um, you know, please drop us a feedback. Um, we take feedback seriously and we try and incorporate in, uh, incorporate our feedback in our, um, in our future episodes. And um, we'll, we'll see you back another Monday. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. We aim to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology every second week. Review us on your favourite podcast app or send your comments or questions to podcast at ratcliffe-group.com. To view the series, head to radcliffecardiology.com forward slash podcasts forward slash parallax. Thanks for listening.